Hi, I'm your host, Brittany Spence, and this is In the Face of Illness. We are a podcast committed to cultivating a greater understanding of the many resources available for families facing childhood illness, because we believe this is a vital topic of conversation, not only for families in the throes of the fight, but for everyone. Ultimately, we are here to offer hope in the face of illness. David Spence co-founded the Forrest Spence Fund in memory of his son, Forrest. David was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. He graduated with his B.A. from the University of Tennessee, received his medical degree from the University of Tennessee College of Medicine, completed his residency in orthopedic surgery at the Campbell Clinic in Memphis, Tennessee, and completed a fellowship in pediatric orthopedic surgery at Harvard Medical School. He is employed as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon with Campbell Clinic in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. Spence is certified by the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery. He is an assistant professor at the University of Tennessee Campbell Clinic Department of Orthopedics and serves as an active member of the Pediatric Orthopedic Society of North America, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, and the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine. Dr. Spence has contributed to multiple textbooks and is actively engaged in research that has been published in many peer-reviewed journals. He specializes in pediatric and adolescent sports medicine, pediatric and young adult hip preservation, trauma, deformity correction, neuromuscular disorders, and spinal deformity. David is the proud father of four children, Forrest, Austin, Miller, and Maggie, and husband to Brittany. Today, we have a very special guest on the podcast with us. We have Dr. David Spence, co-founder of the Forest Spence Fund. We're so glad you're here. Hey, thanks for having me. Today, David and I are going to talk a little bit about Forest's story and why the fund was started in the first place. And so we are going to share a little bit about his story. Many of you probably know parts of his story, but may not know the full story and also may not know the background of why the Forest Spence Fund was first dreamed of, the vision, and how it first began. So we're so glad because really the vision came from you. And so we wanted to have you on to tell more about the vision and where and how you thought this should go. Well, thanks for having me. I think it's always fun to talk about where we began because it's fun to look back and and um, think about those early years and, and then to look ahead and just see how far we've come. And that's mostly on you, of course. Um, so, Well, uh, both of us, for sure. Why don't, you, why don't you tell the story of Forrest? I think you do it so well. Forrest was our first child, first pregnancy, first child, and overall had a pretty good normal pregnancy, had a normal 20-week ultrasound. And probably in my naive self thought that if you had a good 20 week, then you were going to have a healthy baby. And um, obviously that wasn't the case for us. And it's not always the case. Um, we delivered Forrest at 36 and three days. We had just, I had just had the group B strep test and I had tested negative. And so there was no reason to give me any antibiotics. But unfortunately, when Forrest was born, I'm called a blind carrier of group B strep. And so I test negative, but I am positive. And so Forrest contracted group B strep during birth. And very quickly, he started to show signs of respiratory distress. 
we felt like in the beginning, and so did uh, the NICU at the hospital um, that he was delivered at, felt like he was just showing respiratory distress because he was early and um, he was a little boy who was struggling. And so no one was really alarmed, but uh, within the first 12 hours of birth, Forrest became uh, more and more sick. He became septic and his organs were shutting down. And so uh, in the middle of the night, um, somewhere between that three and four o'clock a.m., there was a knock on our door and in walked a very disheveled looking neonatologist who introduced himself and proceeded to say immediately, uh, I'm Dr. So-and-so and I'm afraid your son may die. Uh, Forrest was um, truly dying down in the NICU and we had to hear the doctor go on what he thought was going on, but really no one knew exactly. We had to sign a lot of paperwork and give consent for Forrest to be transported to Labonder Children's Hospital. We were then told to come downstairs and say goodbye to our son, not knowing whether he would live or die. So David and I said goodbye to Forrest as they loaded him in the incubator and took him into the ambulance down to Labonder Children's Hospital. David followed the ambulance as I waited behind uh, for my OBGYN to discharge me. And... Um, truly did not know if Forrest would live or die. I quickly got to Labonner Children's Hospital where Forrest had been placed on an ECMO machine, which in uh, layman's terms really is like a heart-lung bypass machine. He was so sick that the typical ventilator or oscillator was just not enough for him. He was on ECMO for five days, uh, they found a grade three head bleed, and so he was taken very quickly off. Uh, for the next 55 days, he fought infections and sicknesses and had bedside procedures and surgeries and really the biggest roller coaster you can ever imagine. The highest of highs and the lowest of lows. We didn't hold him until he was 31 days old. He didn't really open his eyes till he was 31 days old. Um, a lot of days where we didn't know if he would uh, make it through that day. There were also days where we had hoped that we would bring him home, that uh, we weren't naive to think that he wouldn't have complications or long-lasting effects from his sickness and his long hospitalization, but we had hoped that he could recover to be able to come home. Around Halloween, he took a bad turn and um, really showed us that he had fought a long, hard battle and that he was very tired and he uh, was ready to go. And we knew at that point that it was not if he would die, it was when. And we stayed by his side every moment that we possibly could. We said our goodbyes. Our family said their goodbyes. The staff came and said their goodbyes. We had gotten so close to the staff at Lavonner Children's Hospital. And so many came to say their goodbyes as well after we had been there for so long. And um, on that 55th day, a little after 10 o'clock at night, as I held him in my arms and David held me in his arms uh, in the only place that he had ever been in the pediatric ICU, Forrest took his last breath. 
And um, that was on November 4th of 2007. He was 55 days old. During that weekend um, that we knew he was dying, David looked at me um, really about 26, 27 hours before Forrest died. And he looked at me and said, I want to do something. I want to do something more. I think we should start a fund called the Forrest Spence Fund. I think we should have a logo with a little tree leaning into a big tree. We need families to know that they are not alone and that we can help them. And I'll be real honest. I looked right at him and said, I don't think I can do it. I want to just curl up into a ball and... Honestly, I just want to die with Forrest. I don't, I don't want to, I don't think I can do it. And David said, we're going to, we can, and we will. And um, on Forrest's 54th day of life, the Forrest Spence Fund really vision was started. And so I'd love for you to talk about why, what made you think about doing that? What gave you the thought and the vision and the dream and even the fact that, I mean, I will never forget it, that you even had the logo in your mind. And it is the logo we still have to this day. You drew it out with our graphic designer that we still have to this day. Y'all drew it out two or three days later, and it is still the same logo we use today. So tell us about that. What was your vision for that? How did that come about? How long had you been thinking about that? Yeah, first off, I think it's so surreal that it's been, you know, 15 years since that moment, right? And we've told the story so many times, but it's just every time you do, right, we just go right back there into that room. And I just remember it so vividly. You know, for me, that experience was, uh, you know, was really hard. I was a second-year resident at the time, and so I had a lot more medical knowledge, obviously, than you did. And I watched a movie recently where they basically told the same story through the eyes of, you know, two different people. And, and, and it is, um, it's always interesting to me to hear the differences in, in your story versus mine, even though it was the exact same story. But, um, yeah, those are hard times. And I, I think, you know, when you ask, um, where the vision came from, it was, it was really not just about our experience, but about the experience of those other families that were in the ICU while we were there. So for part of uh, Forest hospitalization, we were uh, out in the ICU in this really kind of wide open format. This was the old Labonner before they renovated, built their new facility. Uh, and so at that time, there were several beds that were just out in kind of this common area. ECMO is a machine that requires a lot of equipment and moving parts and personnel. And so we were out in that area. And so as you remember, as we were going through this, as we were singing to Forrest or reading him books or, you know, rubbing his back, you know, we, we would look up and see so many other families. And you felt like you were really walking, you know, with these other families through their own journeys, which were in many cases as terrible as, as ours. And so many different ages. I mean, I'll never forget that, too. Of The big you is newborn up to 18. And so you really see it all. You're sitting there with your newborn experiencing this, but then you see families with a 14-year-old ATV accident or a two-year-old drowning victim or a 16-year-old car accident. It, it's There's something about that too, that you see every kind of injury, sickness, illness, trauma 
possible. Yeah, and I think one of the things that has always struck me, both through my medical career and training, but also in in, in that experience, is just that you know, you know, tragedy affects you know can affect anybody, yeah. uh, any walk of life, any you know social economic status, uh, any age. Um, and it's, you know, it's a great equalizer, right? So all of us in there knew nothing about each other's personal lives beyond what we, you know, got to know through just yeah. walking that journey with each other. But, but all of us were, you know, significantly impacted by illness. And I think it's that impact on the, not just the patient, not just the children, but on the family, on the marriages, on the grandparents, on the friends, on the families, the churches. Siblings, yeah. I think it was that impact that really led me to think, you know, we ought to do something more. You know, hospitals are great at treating patients, and Le Bonner's is a world-class hospital. They do a great job. Um, they're very good at it. Um, but hospitals are not built to care for families. And at that time, family-centered care was a, a young term. It wasn't used uh, in the way that we hear it now through other hospitals. And really, the vision I had was for us to take this tragedy um, and use it for something positive. And the positive that I, that I felt like we could make a difference in would be supporting those families as they walk through these journeys. And whether that's a physical need, an emotional need, a psychological need, I really wanted us to come around and really plug in some of the holes that hospitals are unable to fill in terms of how they support their families. And so, you know, I really, when we started the fund, I really... Uh, I wanted Forrest's name a part of it, but I really didn't want the Spence name on it. But uh, I couldn't get away from the fact that if we called it the Forrest Fund, people would think we're raising money for trees, which people which still, still do. Still do. <laughs> still um, do. So Even maybe I, I should have thought a little harder. I was going through a lot of you know psychological, emotional trauma at the time. Right, of course. I think the uh, the logo was something that just popped into my head. Obviously, there's the play on Forrest and the name, but I just had this idea of this you know, tree being planted, uh, you know, kind of on the shore and, and deeply rooted and having this, uh, you know, more immature, younger tree really needing to lean into the strength mm -hmm. of that tree. And um, it doesn't make perfect sense, um, but I think it uh, accomplished it what I wanted to at the time. Yeah. And it was just a logo that I put down on paper and sent to Jen and she made look look nice, and, and and we've stuck with it. But I also think I think the the joy of the logo to me is that it can it can really be interpreted in many ways. I mean, it can be that the big tree that's standing up straight can be, you know, the daddy tree with the little tree leaning in. It can be the mommy tree with the little tree leaning in. It can be Jesus with us leaning in, us as parents or grandparents or whoever leaning into Jesus. It can. It can take on so many different descriptions of what it could mean to you. And that's one of the reasons I love it so much is just thinking about how much we leaned in to Jesus, to community, to family, to the staff. We couldn't have made it if we had not leaned on the love and support of so many others. And so we hope that others can lean into us, into the fund, into our staff, into you and I. And so I hope that it's an example of that, too, that people can lean in. I think it is an amazing logo. Yeah, I love that symbolism. Yeah. When you first started it, though, what was your initial vision? Was your vision of just 
helping individual families because obviously now we have four core components that we focus our nonprofit in. You know, our mission is very similar to the mission it was the day we started. Um, but even then, I mean, there's things that we started when we first started that are still in place today, but obviously we've grown tremendously from that into other cities, into we have over 20 programs that we have within the hospitals, the components. What were some of your hopes when you first said to me that you wanted to do this? Yeah, so I think my first thought was let's, you know, in lieu of flowers, let's direct uh, whatever gifts we receive, you know, back to supporting these families. And at that time, you know, I thought it may just be a one-time gift. I mean, let's just, you know, instead of bringing us flowers or sending flowers, you know, make a small donation and we'll gather that donation and then give it back to where we think we can impact the most people through the hospital. Uh, but as you remember, we had such a outpouring of support that we thought, well, maybe there's more here that we can do. And so I think my first vision was to really get those funds uh, to the families in a way that made the biggest difference. You know, we talked about counseling early on because that was something that you and I were going through. We we talked about care baskets and, and small gestures that made families aware that there were people that were uh, willing to walk the journey with them or that cared about them, right? right. Tragedy is so isolating. And even for those people like us that had friends and family and churches and community around them, you know, going through that time is very isolating. And I, I've heard you talk a lot about that over the years, and my experience really uh, you know, was the same. Um, and so, yeah, the initial goal was let's let's figure out how we can make an impact in that space. And then, you know, we met with various people to discuss how what that might look like, and and we. We talked early on about starting a nonprofit, and almost the universal advice was don't start a nonprofit. <laughs> and we maybe should have listened to that. It's um, still our advice to those listening. Uh, Just come underneath us. I gave, start a, your own. I gave a talk, as you know, I gave a talk recently in Nashville as part of a medical conference on how to give back. And, and one of my summary slides was don't start a nonprofit. And if you don't believe me, then I'll give you my wife's phone number. <laughs> um, I think it is really hard, and there's so many components to it. And obviously, we say that a bit ton in cheek, but there's so many good nonprofits. And we don't regret starting it. Please hear us uh, say that. We that don't regret my advice it. is to get, you know, just get on board with one of these many nonprofits uh, in, in the area, in the city, in the state, in the, in the country. Um, but as, as we met with people, you know, we initially structured this organization uh, through a donor advised fund. We set up an account through a community foundation. We were then able to give money to other nonprofits. So as we started, we would go on a shopping spree at Target with a Le Bonheur employee, and we would buy items uh, that we could put in baskets or give directly to units or child life uh, to, to give out to families. And I think the frustration uh, of that was we weren't able to get the money or the resource directly to the family. We still had to go through a, a third party. And I think both of us recognized that that wasn't the most effective way to get uh, the support to the family. And it also put the hospital in an awkward situation because they were then in the position of deciding who got what or what need was met and what need wasn't. And that was a really hard situation for them. And so in spite of the, the wise counsel we'd received, we um, revisited the idea of a nonprofit and we incorporated and went through the, the formal process of becoming 
a nonprofit. And at that point, we really wanted to run an organization. We wanted to expand. We wanted to be able to fundraise. We wanted to be able to tear and tell a narrative that people could uh, relate to or empathize or even sympathize with. And that's really where we started building the different pillars of mm-hmm. the organization. And, you know, I do think a, a beauty of it, too, is our ability to be able to connect with families who are on a similar journey. I mean, as many years as you and I have mentored other families and loved on other families, you know, we are always quick to say that we don't understand what they're going through because each story is their story. And even though there are similarities of long hospital stays or being told your child may die and not knowing day in and day out what's going to happen, it's each person's story. And so we don't ever try to say, I know what you're going through. I understand what you're going through because I don't. I don't know what they're going through. But I do know and you know what it's like to sit and rock in a rocker that honestly is very uncomfortable next to your child's bed and just pray and hope that today will be a good day, that they will make a turn where that doctor or that staff member will walk in and say, we've made that turn. You're heading down a good way where so often staff would walk in and I would just hold my breath because I knew they were about to say something else that was going to break me. Um, And so one of my favorite parts of what we do is our giving back component Mm -hmm. that um, I got to speak with a, a mom today about it, our giving back component of just that, that families want to honor their child living or not. They want to honor their child who went through a really, really difficult journey. And so they can do that through the fund. They can um, often will help them figure out something that brought joy or comfort to the child or to the family as they were in the hospital or while their child was sick. And they can um, fundraise themselves or they can make a donation or they can ask others to make a donation to the fund. And we use whatever's raised dollar in, dollar out to give back in that child's name. We've done loveys in honor of children. We've done sea soothers. We've done CD players, sound machines. We've bought mama roos. We've done entire development centers. And so we have over 20 programs in the hospital. And some of those were started because of giving back. And so, you know, one of the joys of what we get to do is that we get to hear hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories of sometimes hard stories, sometimes stories, they're all hard, but sometimes stories that maybe they didn't have a good hospital experience. Maybe it was a very negative hospital experience. And so they want to do something to try to make others a little more positive, um, where overall, our experience was very positive. I mean, we, even though our story did not end a happy ending, we walked away with friendships that we would have never had. We're still so close to the staff that took care of our son. I mean, we still interact with them often. Obviously, you do. You practice in the hospital. That's so much of that staff. So you see them day in and day out. But when I mentor, it brings me such joy to see so many of those who took care of Forrest. But to have families have a way that they can honor their child and give back and have something good come from something that is so hard. And that's such a joy as well. And that was something, a vision you and I had of we want families to be able to to do something from their hard experience 
Um, yeah, I think that's a great program, and I, I wish families utilized it more. Um, there seems to be a trend uh, to want to do something, you know, big like we did in honor of a child or a tragic situation. And I think that's a natural response as you're going through the the hard time and, and the hardship. And certainly we did that. But I think what families can't see at the time is what that looks like moving forward. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, 15 years later, we're uh, sharing our story. We're reliving these hard moments. We're going back into the ICU where we say goodbye to our son for the last time. I, I rounded there this morning and walked through there. And it is fun to see familiar faces and friends and people that played such a big part in, in, in that part of our story. But it's hard to sustain that. And um, and it, it takes a part of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't think you and I are the same people we were walking into that hospital, certainly that first day. No, absolutely not. And so I, I wish we could convince people to participate in that giving back program where it can really, you know, really check that box for families of really honoring their family member allowing friends and family and community to support them and redirect funds and resources back to families in a way that is really meaningful and impactful for those families. But they don't have to do it by starting a nonprofit and raising money and running events and dealing with payroll. Yeah, yeah, taxes and all the other things. And for those of y'all that don't know David and I personally, a a good way to just know a little bit about us is David is the visionary and I am the doer. And so David really has so much vision. Um, and in some ways that'll be, you know, when I'm talking about, well, I'm going after sponsors, David will be quick to say, well, you know, like, what about like Coca-Cola? I'm like, well, I'm going to go to that little bank around the corner. I hope Coca-Cola is listening. <laughs> that would be amazing. But David has always been the visionary where I am more of, okay, you know, Often when he starts having a big vision, I first feel overwhelmed. That's usually my first reaction to it. And then once I've thought about it for a while, I then can go, okay, how are we going to make that happen? How's the day-to-day going to get us to that point of whatever vision it may be? And, you know, truly, I think sitting here so many years later, we can say without a doubt that we couldn't have done this without the support that we've had from friends, community, strangers. I mean, people who believed in us, but really believed in the mission and saw. And we say so often that sometime in your lifetime, you are going to experience childhood childhood sickness or death. Because if it's not, we, we pray and hope it's not your own child, but it if not, it could be a cousin, a neighbor, a um you know, Girl Scout troop, whatever it may be, you're going to come across it. And what we hope is that we can be a resource for you. Uh, A dear friend of mine called me two weeks ago, and uh, she knows someone that has gone into the hospital. And she said, you know, I really wanted to do something. And so I went on your website, and I clicked, and I saw what you put in your care bags. And so I made a very similar care bag and took it. And it warmed my my soul, knowing that what we have tried to quote unquote, perfect over the last 15 years of what we think makes a great care bag, that this person looked at it and said, I can do that too. And I want to be able to do that to encourage this family. And she told me what a blessing that was for us to be able to um, 
provide that. And so we hope, too, that not only are we able to help families, but we also are able to encourage you on ways that you can help families that, you know, with even this podcast, we've done podcasts on ways to love families when their children are sick. We hope that you've listened to that and hopefully taken the advice that was based upon us asking tons and tons of families who've gone through sicknesses and childhood illness and death. What was an encouragement to you? What are ways that you felt loved by others? Because we've said it's so lonely. It just, you and I were 27 and 28 years old first child, I knew no one who had walked a road like this. I knew no one who ever had a child as sick as ours in a hospital as long as ours and then died. You know, you knew the medical side of things. And so you obviously knew more than me of how sick he was and how critical he was and where I was naive enough to think that truly we might we might walk away from this. We might be okay. He might be okay. That we could leave with a a, a precious baby boy. Um, and you guarded me from that. Um, and I know that had to be so hard um, to know how sick he was, um, and to know as much as you knew. Um, and to protect me from that so I could just love him well and I could show up each and every day and sing to him and read to him without knowing how sick he really was. Yeah, I think uh, that, that was certainly a hard time. And um, while, yes, I, I understood more of you know the medical jargon and I was able to interpret a lot of the tests and with the different information than you had. I, I, I still, yeah, I, I remember a week before he passed away, we were, we were, you know, getting his nursery ready because uh, we were weaning the vent. We were preparing to go home. I mean, everything indicated that we were going to be able to wean him off the vent and and kind of move forward. And I, I probably had a little bit different picture of what that might look like moving forward. I mean, he would have had some issues that he would have had to definitely tackle. Um, I, knew, so, I did know that. I mean, I do remember because, I mean, I even remember on Halloween. I mean, that's, that's how quickly he took such a bad turn. I remember yeah. on Halloween telling my boss that I wasn't going to return to my job. And my boss saying like, no, 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 we can make this work. We can, we can do this. You can stay. I was doing youth ministry at the time. You can stay. And I remember looking at him and saying, he's going to have so many follow-up appointments. He's going to have so much rehab. He's going to need so much. That's not fair to him that I can't be everything he needs. Plus it's not fair to my students that I can't be what they need. And that literally was on Halloween. And then the very next day, he started to just really not act right and show signs that he wasn't he wasn't doing okay. Um, and so it was such a kick in the gut of like, what just happened? I mean, mm-hmm. even though we'd had, I mean, you and I both said that, you know, we could, if you asked me today, could you go day by day and tell me day by day, something good or bad that happened in those 55 days, I could tell you. I mean, I really could relive all 55 days 
uh, it's not healthy for yeah. me to do it. Yeah, I can't do that for sure. I mean, I, I mean, I really can. You know, I mean, I can tell you all of them. Um, I know it's not healthy after many years of therapy and, you know, <laughs> walking away that it's it's not healthy to do. Um, thankfully, so many of the things that I remember are the joy. I mean, the joy of him squeezing my finger, the joy of him opening his eyes, the joy of us holding him the joy of singing and reading, you know, letting others meet him, um, seeing the way people loved us. I mean, yeah. it, it, we're definitely very different people than we were. Our marriage is very different. I mean, yeah, that's, I, that's probably a whole nother <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Good, <laughs> Im, bad or ugly. <laughs> Im, impact of uh, major life events on, on a marriage. Yeah. Uh, no, I think we've leaned into one another and I think that's been important and it's strengthened us. And I think both of us would uh, tell you that our marriage is stronger having gone through this. Yeah. And I think you asked me, you know, what are things that encourage me during this process? And, and one of those, um, I think back to a, a, a different situation in my life where I was, I was uh, worried about, you know, the, the outcome of a, of a different event. And I, I happened to be with a friend who had uh, lost a loved one very close to, to them. And that in my, in that moment, that was, that was my biggest fear. And I remember there being such uh, comfort knowing that I was sitting next to this guy that had been through what my worst fear was in that moment, because he was a friend, he loved life. He uh, had found joy um, and, and was, was a dear friend. And so you know, I found great comfort in, in seeing those examples of families that had gone through something terrible uh, and in looking and seeing that they're OK, mm -hmm. you know, that they were able to uh, move through that event. Right. A lot of people say, you know, you, you'll get over it. You, you don't get over the loss of a child, but you certainly move through it and right. you, you keep moving. And so I found great comfort in that, you know, but also found a lot of comfort in little things. A, a good friend of ours uh, mowed the yard for us while we were in the hospital. The yard's not something I thought about, but, you know, when we got home, I, I don't really recall being home very much during that 55 days. But when we were home, you know, we certainly didn't take the time to cut grass and stock our fridge, stock fridge, walk or our dog. do laundry. And so, you know, we had so many friends do little things and, and those were big deals. And, yeah. um, and the advice I give is, you know, if you think of doing something for somebody uh, and you're not sure if it's the right thing, just do it. You know, uh, no one's ever going to get angry at you for trying to help, trying to help, uh, especially if it's coming from the right place. Yeah. And do little things, fold laundry, cut grass, you know, stock their fridge, walk their dog. Uh, those are just little tangible ways uh, to really help people. Looking back. Now, you know, so many years down the road, um, is there anything that you would tell your old self? Is there anything that you would tell yourself before he was born? Would you tell yourself anything while he was sick or even right after? Is there anything that you think, man, I wish I'd known or... Yeah, I, I think that's dangerously close to the what if game, which is, you know, I hate. It's one of my least favorite games. <laughs> David hates anything to do with what if. If you ask uh, him, now people are going to ask you. Oh, uh, no. What's your favorite song? Nobody's listening. Yes, they are. David can't do it. He can't tell you anything favorite. I am his favorite wife. I've narrowed that one down. <laughs> Don't ask me my favorite food or movie. I can't tell you. Um, 
Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, you know, unfortunately, we're in control of so few things, if anything, in our life. And I think we just have to take life as it comes and we have to frame it with an appropriate worldview. Um, uh, I do think, um, you know, I do believe in absolute truth and believe in God and all these other things that help frame my personal worldview. And so I, even though, you know, a counselor may disagree, I, I do think. Uh, I don't enjoy going back and reliving moments and, and think about how that might change or what I would have done differently because, you know, we're through that moment and I didn't do it differently. Um, there are lots of things with Forrest and it, it, it tends to actually take me to a darker place where there are a few tangible things I would have done differently and would it have affected his outcome? Maybe. Um, but it's hard for, you know, it's easy for me to get trapped in that place and that's a dark place. Yeah. And I think our advice, too, is, you know, when we were walking it, and especially in those last few days where it became very clear to both of us that he was dying. And, um, you know, we had really hard conversations with each other. We were very open and honest with each other. So not only did we talk about starting a nonprofit and what that, you know, would look like, but we also looked at each other and said, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to fight for our marriage. I'm going to fight that you're going to grieve one way and I'm going to grieve another. And we can tell you we grieved very differently. But we were very open with each other before he even died and said, the way you grieve, there's no right or wrong. And the way I grieve, there's no right or wrong. And that really helped us in those days where I couldn't get off the ground I couldn't get out of bed from crying and you got up and went to work and me not letting the bitterness or anger of like, how can he get up and go to work and operate on people at the same hospital his child died in as I can't get out of the bed. Um, or there were days that I was doing okay and you were really down and that we had that conversation with each other of, of there's no right way or wrong way to grieve but I'm going to fight for you and I'm going to fight for our marriage. Unfortunately, we literally had people tell us the statistics on divorces that happen because of the death of a child. Please don't do that. If you hear us, please do not ever tell someone that. It, it, obviously, people are aware that, you know, that that is a huge strain on a marriage. But it, it is, by the way, a huge strain. But those statistics are largely made up. When you when you look at the statistics, it's they don't bear out. You're not at a higher risk of divorce, but part of that is because divorce is so rampant to begin with. Yeah, but it's definitely a huge strain. I mean, there's no no doubt about it. I think meeting with families, uh, one of the things that I feel people receive the best is is acknowledging those things. You know, it's funny how uh, you know, even though I'm a physician and I, I'm on the other side of you know these situations uh, on the medical side, instead of the patient or the family side. Uh, it's interesting how that experience has changed my perspective, and it's 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 helped me become more in tune with what the family is hearing and experiencing, uh, as opposed to the physician. Right, we're we're trying to solve a problem or, or or fix an illness or fix a broken bone, but but the questions they have extend you know well beyond that, and I think one of the things that has been reassuring to families that we've told them is is 
it is okay to grieve differently. Yeah. You know, it is, um, uh, I, I think that has allowed you just us acknowledging that, you know, so many times we've seen that kind of aha, you know, it is okay. Cause yeah. you know, we see those couples struggling differently yeah. and we see some of that bitterness start to fester in that marriage yeah. and just us acknowledging that it's okay to grieve differently and that there are different paths for that. Yeah. Uh, I, I've definitely have um, seen families appreciate. For sure. And us saying too, that, to stop reaching to be the person you were before, because you'll never be that again. You'll never be who you were before your child became sick or trauma or this life altering thing happened to you. But now you have to find your new normal. And so if you stop grieving your old life and what it was before, um, that instead trying to figure out what you want it to be what what is that new normal and David and I could tell story after story mainly from me making um, poor choices or dumb remarks in general but we could tell numerous stories of times that I wanted to open my mouth and tell something of of you know someone needs to go tell that new bride that life is not can we can we tell these stories now <laughs> this would be fun. I think we could tell that one story, but I mean, one, one example really is of just of us saying, or me really feeling like the world needed to know that it's not roses and beautiful and everything's happy and white picket fences or David very quickly was like, no, 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 that's not you. You don't need to tell that. Let them have their happy. Um, but us giving people the example to say, you know, find that new normal, your marriage can go through something so awful and so life-altering, but it can still be beautiful. Our marriage is beautiful. It's real. It's a real marriage. We argue. We fight. We disagree. We have moments where, you know, we're very upset with each other, but we love each other deeply, and we respect each other deeply, and we honor each other, and so much of that is what we went through and that we survived it. And we not only survived it, I mean, we came out on the other side. We have three more beautiful, healthy children who drive us insane, but They're also crazy. bring us so much joy. And um, we have jobs that we both love, and but also at times can be difficult. Um, but the the other thing that we both looked at each other that weekend that he was dying is we said, this will not define us in a way where people will look at us and say, oh, she or he is so bitter because they lost their child or they're angry because they lost their child. Because we all know people like that. We all know people who are very bitter, angry people because they feel like the world did them wrong. And we felt very strongly that we didn't want to be that. We didn't want people to look at us and say, oh, yeah, you know, Brittany's very bitter because her child died. I want people, we wanted people to look at us and say they love more deeply. They help more. They're more empathetic or whatever it may be because of they went what they went through. But that was a choice that I felt like almost every day we had to wake up and say, I'm going to choose today to not be bitter because it was 
It was a real feeling to feel like I had had taken from me the most important thing in the whole world to me. And I think I would have been an amazing mom to Forrest. Um, And so that was really hard. It was really hard. It was really hard to, well, I'll never forget going to Walmart after he died. And and we've all been at Walmart when we've seen a mama really getting angry at her child and saying things that are hard to hear spanking him in the middle of Walmart. And Some of us have been that parent. And me just crying so hard thinking, I wish mine was here. I, I don't understand. Um, and it's still hard 15 years later sometimes to accept that. But, um, but I think we made such a choice of not letting it define us in, in that way, in such a negative way. Um, and so we hope to be encouragement to others of you can make it through this journey. You can put one foot in front of the other and you can, it's going to look different than you ever imagined, but it can still be beautiful. Yeah. I think in some ways it's, um, it's given me more confidence. Uh, matter of fact, I was talking to Austin, our, our oldest, um, just when you go through hard moments or that are stressful, you know, it's nice to be able to think back to those times in life where you've overcome or achieved. And, uh, and I think going through that experience with Forrest at that point in my life um, really gave me confidence in other areas. You know, as, as you know, in residency, I mean, residency is full of really challenging moments and long nights and hard hours. And I, I just almost on a weekly basis, I would just tell myself, well, if I can get through losing my son, then, you know, this is no big deal. Mm-hmm. And it gave me confidence and even courage at times to get through moments that prior to that, I probably would have just backed away from because I thought, well, that's too hard or I'm not, I don't think I can do it. Mm-hmm. And so it, it did help reframe things and put things into perspective that I probably would not have had Yeah, otherwise. Oh, for sure. I, mean, I, I, I definitely feel that way when I was losing my mom. I mean, I, I very much so think if it had not been forced that losing my mom would have wrecked me. Um, and it did, but, but I also knew that I had survived the loss of Forrest. And so I could survive the loss of my mother as well. And, um, and also just knowing that when you feel like you're drowning in grief and that you'll never breathe again, and that you'll never feel like that weight of grief will, grief will ever lift, Going through it years later with my mom, I knew that it would. And so I had more hope in knowing that that feeling of drowning in grief would, that the the waves, I mean, one of the ways that I explain people to grief is that when you first lose someone you love, you truly feel like you're drowning and that that wave is just hitting you constant and that you can't even get a breath because another wave comes and another wave comes. And over time, the waves lesson. They, they spread apart a little bit. The hard part of that is you don't know when a wave's going to come. And so even mm-hmm. now, 15 years later, a wave will hit me that will totally knock me off of my feet yeah. because I wasn't ready for it. Where that first year, you knew those waves were coming almost every moment of every day. Mm-hmm. And so you were ready for those waves and you lived in that trying to stay above. Now, something will come 
that will remind me of him or remind me of my mom and it will knock me off my feet because of the years and that the waves are less spread out. But because I know I survived that feeling of drowning in the waves of forest, I knew I could survive it with my mom. And having that, like you said, that hope, um, having that strength of knowing you're by my side, um, my my faith in the Lord, I mean, those things really helped me survive both of those. Um, yeah, I think, you know, our, one of the, th- I think the best things we did was add in our tagline, right? Empathy, understanding, hope. And I think we've addressed... Uh, really all of those today, just talking through this. But I think the hope that we're trying to provide is not the hope that your child's going to get better. We, we can't control that. Um, but we can provide hope that you're going to be able to withstand whatever comes your way, uh, whether that's a, a child that fully recovers and it was just a traumatic experience or whether you lose a child or everything in between. And I think the understanding we provide is not that we understand exactly what you're going through, but we understand aspects of it, and we understand that it's hard, and we understand that it's isolating. And I think that understanding is comforting to families. Uh, And then the empathy, it's hard to go through something like this and not then be able to put yourself in other people's uh, shoes when they're going through something similar. Um. And so, yeah, I think one of the best things we did was really create that tagline. I think that was your idea, all three of those words, empathy, understanding, hope. And and Donna. Donna helped um, us with that, our first program director. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Donna Nash. Um, but I think, you know, we talk in the nonprofit world, you hear people talk about their elevator speech and, you know, how do you concisely articulate what it is that you do? You you still think that I don't do it. <laughs> you don't do a great job with that. I don't very do long elevator. <laughs> I don't do a quick elevator pitch. I do one uh, if you're going to go up like a hundred floors. Yeah, it's all buildings for sure, <laughs> for sure. But I think just that tagline. I'm trying. I'm trying. Really to shorten it. articulates well uh, what it is we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I just I feel like you know you and I are cautious about um, ever coming across that. We have the perfect marriage or the Mm. perfect children or the perfect house or that we do anything perfect. That's really important to us that we're vulnerable and real and say, you know, that it's hard and that it hasn't been easy. It wasn't easy, obviously, walking that road with Forrest and all the fear that came afterwards, too, of what if we have another child? What if we still to the fear today of of what if something happens to one of my other children? I mean, Mm. those things don't don't go away. And so we hope that you hear us say, you know, we are real people with real fears and real, real problems, real problems and real insecurities. And, um, and that we make mistakes and we're just doing the very best that we can, but we want families to know that we are there for them and we are, we are, they're not alone in whatever capacity that we can offer that, whether it's financially, emotionally, physically, whether it's in a gas card, a meal voucher, it's something big as a financial grant, or we pay off a loan or whatever it may be. Um, and I love the way that, that our stories have, have evolved, that you are a physician, a surgeon who truly can stand by a bedside and say, I have I have watched as my son has suffered and my son has had procedure and I have feared about the unknown. And I think that's made you have such compassion and bedside manner that is amazing. And I think so much of that is from the experience that you walked with our son um, and, and seeing the way that other doctors 
spoke to us or treated us, whether it was good, bad, or ugly, because we had all of the above. Mm-hmm. And we have many, many stories of, of you know, the way that Bedside Manor went well and maybe not so well. And so um, I think that God has done great things with your story of that and how it's been used for his glory as you as a doctor and as a surgeon. Um, and I'll just say very publicly that um, the day in and day out, you know, is me and my team, but it could never be what it is without you. And you are the vision. You continue to be the vision. You continue to be the one that is constantly pushing me to do more and to um, and to work as hard as I can, uh, while also encouraging me and loving me and supporting me. And the fund is what it is because of you and your vision and your um, leadership as the president of the board and uh, your leadership as a husband. And um, sometimes that's hard that you are technically my boss, mm. plus my husband. That's true. <laughs> Our kids like to say that David could um, fire me because he's my boss. Uh, I jokingly like to say I'd like for him to try. But um, I'm just so thankful for you. Well, and Thank um, you. I mean, that's kind of you to say. But I think anybody that knows us knows that I just, you know, I come up with the ideas and then you execute them. And so... Um, it really, you know, the success of the fund is is uh, almost entirely due to you and and the people that have supported us over the years, and that I just have, have mostly taken a supportive role, although hands on at, at, at the right times. <laughs> um, Very hands on for sure. So I, I think uh, it's really been fun to do it with you, yeah. and uh, I think it's taken both of us and uh, and our whole team uh, to really be able to continue to do what we do here 15 years later. It's hard to believe it's been 15 years. and mm-hmm. So um, many of our, I mean, we have board members who have been with us since the day we started. Yeah. 15 years we've had board members, and I think that's rare. I mean, it's rare to have someone come beside you and walk with you through this journey. I mean, not only you and I, but board members who have as well and sure. volunteers. Volunteers have been there since the our first events, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you for giving us your time. I know you're, welcome. you're super busy. And well, you so... put it on my calendar, so <laughs> it's did, easy to do. I had to reach out to his assistant. Called my assistant, cleared my schedule. <laughs> to clear schedule. Happy but, to do it. Uh, we're so glad that you could spend time with us and tell us more about your vision. And um, this couldn't be without you. And Thank so, you. Um, well, I look forward to coming back. We'll come back in 15 more years, see where we yeah. are. Um, thank you for joining us today, and um, we uh, look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. We hope that this podcast is a resource for you and a source of support. Whether you are facing illness in your own family or want to walk beside other families dealing with childhood illness. We want the stories, wisdom, and knowledge shared to give you hope. Episodes will be released bi-weekly, so be sure to subscribe today.